Welcome to the What's Up with Docs podcast, the documentary podcast for all of us. I'm Tony Bell, the creator and host. I would like to acknowledge the traditional, ancestral, unceded territory of the Tongva and the Chumash on which this podcast is being recorded. We do land acknowledgments as an act of reconciliation that recognizes the traditional territory of the indigenous people who called the land home before the arrival of colonizers and in many cases still do call it home. Giving back to the community has always been a distinguishing characteristic of the Chumash. Their elders taught many important lessons in life, including the spirit of generosity. From their ancestral roots using bead money as currency, the Chumash tribe has grown immensely. Since the tribe took the significant step of establishing the Santa Ynez Band of Chumash Indians Foundation in 2005, they have worked with hundreds of local groups, organizations, and schools throughout the region. To find out more about this organization, please see the land acknowledgement section on this episode's page. On this episode, I speak with the writer, director, and producer of Socks on Fire, Bo McGuire. The film was a winner of the Best Documentary Feature Award at the 2020 Tribeca Film Festival and will have its international premiere at IDFA later this month. Since Bo is a country boy at heart and Reba McIntyre is one of his favorite artists, this episode's song is a country classic, Fancy. Here's our conversation, which was recorded in June 2020. So I'm I'm just going to let people know that um, Bo's clearly from Alabama. I'm from Georgia. So um, the accents are going to be coming out. <laughs> so y'all can thank us later for that. We are a lyr- a southerners are lyrical people. <laughs> That's right. We we depend on the rhyme and not necessarily the sense. You know. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. All right, so I just want to go um, just a little bit into like how we met because that's how I start all these podcasts. So I first met you and your your amazing, fabulous team at IFP Week in twenty yeah twenty eighteen, I believe. I remember seeing the trailer for your film, and first of all, I had never seen anything like it, and I was so proud of you because um, you were the, this queer man from the South, and the South just has this. People have this really messed up version of what the South is. Okay, granted, maybe some of it may be be earned, but you know, bigotry and homophobia are across this nation. It's just, it's just in the South. Yes. You know, it's they had the signs. You know, <laughs> you had the signs. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. But you were telling this story that was so familiar to me, which I mean, as a Southerner, and I want to wait to get into the movie because I know I'm going to be crying when we get into the movie. But um, at what stage were you at that point when I met you at IFP Week? Well, I just want to say all I remember about that meeting at IFP Week is that you had a big old pride fan or some sort of fan that you snapped out. Yeah, because I'm a woman of a certain age and it, it was hot. Yeah, it was one of my my fans I got from um, DragCon. Yes, yes. I, was, I was like, I am amongst family now. Like, yeah. I, you know, I can give the full bow show unedited right now. Yeah, and at that point, we had done like one round of production, like ten, seven days, maybe. Set, I think it was seven days of not knowing what the hell we were doing whatsoever. Like, I just knew. Like, I mean, long story short, and even getting longer, is that I was. NYU, I was a student there and they were about to graduate 
me without using the equipment because I didn't have like the funds to do the feature narrative film that I wanted. So I had, um, I knew that I had the access to this equipment that I had to use. And I knew I had a certain amount of um, drama going down in my family. And uh, so I just knew if I could get the right people here who were willing to just have fun, go out with me on this limb and see where we end up, that um, something could come of it. I just needed to capture this moment and the people that were around me and the places that had inspired me before they all ended up going away. Um, yeah, yes. So mm-hmm. we, we had shot that. We had like made it into a short film, like a fever dream version that made no sense. But, you know, just like Southerners, like only relies on lyricism and not necessarily like sense. Um, and so we were at that point of like, we know we have something here, but uh, we don't really know where to go from here. Like we have the vision, but uh, we need the blueprint for the rest of it. Right. And we need, you know, uh, the support for the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we were like, probably a third of the way through at that point. Okay. Very early on. Very, very early on. Okay. So then you, you, y'all really got through this film um, fairly quickly. Cause I think the next time I saw you, you were about to um, present in front of the hot dots forum. And I remember I saw you in the lobby cause I stepped out in between stuff and I saw that beautiful like jacket you had. Rodeo pink, pink, uh, Velvet Rodeo, not Velvet, but something like yes, that. Yes, yes, yes. And like, I was so happy to see see you there. And um, and then we later like hung out at the uh, the consulate, the Canadian, the American consulate in Canada. Yes, <laughs> yes. And I I lamented the lack of vodka. I only remember the consulate's wife, and I used to remember her name, and it's not coming to me now. But oh, she was my person. Like she just wanted. Like I was like, can I sit on this couch forever and just talk to you and all your fabulousness? So not even a year later, honey, you had Tribeca. Yeah. Turn around. Yes. World premiere at Tribeca in the time of COVID. Yes. So how was that for you? I mean, really, because I know a lot of filmmakers were struggling with the decision um, who are having world premieres of whether to do it, you know, via, um, you know, virtually, Mm -hmm. you know, because of issues and concerns about future distribution rights. So how did you make the decision to just kind of move, move forward with that? And do you have a distributor already? No distributor on dock at the moment. Those, um, Those conversations are happening. I mean, I think the, the industry moves slow to begin with, and then um, you hot you like. We're also like an artistic personal documentary, and then also we're in the time of COVID. I feel like the industry is like, what movies do people want to see right now? And like, I think that's just a question that everyone's asking, and we are, you know, sort of in a holding pattern until the industry, the world, figures itself out. But yeah, it was a really quick turnaround, and like I always say that Nanny, who the, is my grandmother, my mother's mother the movie is really a love letter to is the the uh, silent executive producer of the movie because that's the only way to explain the rapid fire i mean you know people make documentaries for years and years and years yes like six or seven years is the average right they're a little faster in europe because they have a lot more um government support but yeah and it also had to do, we also did that just by the boldness. Like, even when we didn't have the funds, we would just make a plan and be like, we're going to, it will come later. Like, stepping out on faith in that way. 
and pushing it forward. Um, and then as far as like the side, yeah, I, I don't know. I will tell you it was um, sad and devastating <laughs> to realize uh, that like you had done all this work and like you had this premiere in lock and you were getting ready. I was like contacting people to put embroidery on my hat and like, and all of a sudden it's not happening. And what I did was that I had myself a good old funeral for the way I thought this movie was going to come into the world. Okay. I um, sat on my grandmother's cedar chest in my studio. Okay. My study. <laughs> I put on um, Aretha Franklin's Amazing Grace album. I drank a, a lot of red wine, and I just sat there and boo-hooed and got myself over it in that way. You know, like, okay, good. This dream needs to be put to rest so that the real dream can come forward. And, and it's important to, to take you took that time to grieve that. Yeah, because I mean, it's very emotional. You know, it's um, I mean, it's a personal documentary, number one. But then the people who made it, you know, you talk about my fabulous team, Max and Tatiana, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. It's um, you know, we really love each other, and like we were. Our Family and this was our baby together. So. Yeah, that, that's very clear. I mean, just when I met, yeah, first time I met y'all. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's very, yes, very clear. Well, I always say Max is the brains and I'm the beauty. You know, I just come out, I come out and give the glory, but it's really Max knows. Max, um, Max is um, integral to the success of the narrative of Socks on Fire for sure. That's the editor, by the way, and co-writer. So yeah, I had that grieving moment and it's all, I mean, you know, I just always, I center myself in like, I've never known the path of this movie. It has always operated by surprise. And I believe it will continue to operate under that surprise mentality that, you know, we'll be sitting here, we're sitting here, you know, worried, anxious, thinking about what distributor we're, we will go with or will you know, partner up with us. And I think that we'll worry about that until we turn around and the answer's right there. That's the way it's exactly. always been. Right, right. Mm -hmm. And have you have you been in conversation um, with any um, uh, distributors from Europe? Because and I, ask, I ask that only because um, it seems like European markets tend to be more receptive to quote unquote like experimental documentaries. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, we haven't yeah. yet, but it's definitely on on our horizon and on our minds right. and talking about that. But I mean, you know, it's such a weird time. It's like, I'm sure yeah, it is. Yeah. when you're going out, when we're talking to international sales agents, they're like, we don't know, we don't know the future. You're always, right now we're all operating under, incom with incomplete information. Right, yeah. So, and like, th these are clearly unprecedented times uh, because I always kind of like to say, um, none of us, have ever worked on documentaries or in the documentary industry during a pandemic. Right. So it's, I, it's, it is really clear to, you know, cause I've, I've had filmmaker after filmmaker in my um, job, like ask me, you know, like, okay, what, what should I do about things? And, you know, and asking my advice. And the first thing I start with was, I don't know, you know, but you know, but then I also share. Okay, these are some of the things that other filmmakers are are doing um, because we have to kind of really rely on each other to kind of get through get through this right now. Yeah, and next level creative thinking, like the yes, the work to be done is like to really take this time to imagine what how it could be different. You know, it's we were. I mean, it's still you know, it's Socks on Fire is a movie that would really do well 
in a theater amongst people. Yes, it's, absolutely. You know, yeah. and so I think it's worth like weighing that and considering like how is it do you wait for that to come back again or do you do the, the work right now of like re-envisioning what watching a movie with other people is? And I think right. that that's everyone is talking about that conversation. Um, or I hope they are anyway. And that it, it really will come out of like thinking about it. I mean, you know, I just think that imagination is always important, but it is so important right now. Like, can you envision another way? Like, how do you, what else besides what is already given on the table could be possible? And so it's, it's exciting as well as devastating. It is both things. <laughs> Together, exactly. You have to hold both of these emotions. Um, but also, I mean, you know, being on the industry side, um, I think it's really important for folks on my side to really be cognizant and listen, really listen to the filmmakers because filmmakers are coming up with the, really are coming up with the ways to operate um, in this industry now, you know, right. and really like listen to what y'all need and how we can support that. You know, rather than um, us trying to decide what you need, you know, because <laughs> yeah. like, again, unprecedented. OK, so for each um, episode, we have um, a song and you picked yours, which is going to be Reba McIntyre's Fancy. So tell us about that and how that inspired you to become a filmmaker. Uh, well, when I was small, I was addicted to country music television cmt and this is the height of like the music video like reba mcintyre garth brooks era and like i don't know i mean like i didn't realize that it was a song about a prostitute when i was little i just like saw this like fabulous woman reba who was my idol um in a full-length fur returning to a uh, like a, a shack or a house where her family had lived at one point retelling the story of how her Mother essentially uh, put her into prostitution as a way to escape her poverty. Um, and I don't know, it was just like nothing but shots through this of Reba and her full fur and the this like dilapidated house. I don't know, it's just something that spoke to me. And like she goes out in the end and there's like, spoiler alert, like she goes to her mom's grave in the backyard, you know, and makes peace with her mama. So it was about like, I don't know, the legacy of, females in our families it's just I just really responded to it and it has you know there's the and also the song is like I might have been born just plain white trash but fancy was my name you know as like a little queer boy growing up in Alabama who had all these like Judy Garland visions in his head like it just gay I just related to that ability to see the world envision the world imagine the world beyond okay all right so like as you talk about like what's in the video like i totally see your movie like pieces of your movie yeah i mean the opening shot through the house is a direct like um homage to that music video yeah this this idea of returning um with the knowledge that you have from wherever you have been yeah, so I want to kind of go before we get into the movie. I want to go into um, so you went to NYU film school for better or worse. I certainly did. Okay, okay. So, how did you how did you get there from Bama? Well, y'all who don't know, Bama is short for Alabama, yeah, so. <laughs> and um, Roll Tide or War Eagle. We're being inclusive these days, and we want to get everybody, you know. Yeah, so uh, I'm glad you brought that up because as a youngin, <laughs> I was. I, you know, being from Georgia, you know, Uga, Georgia Bulldogs. And there's this classic rivalry 
between UGA and Alabama. Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I don't know. I'll go. I'll, I'll go to. Um, I always say I'm an Alabama fan out of. Um, damn, I don't even know. I don't even know why I'm an Alabama fan, except I grew up going to the games. And it's the only. Yeah. It is the only sport I can follow the rules of the game. Like, I know what is going on. Yes. Big Roll Tide, big Ugga, big War Eagle. The only, person, yes. the only team I was raised to, like, not like was Tennessee, to be honest. But now, <laughs> even that, it's like. Not uh, UT gave Dolly Parton, you know, an honorary doctorate. So I got to give them. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Them, yes. So. Especially since you're a member of the Church of Dolly Parton, which you're going to talk about. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> We're going to talk about that. Well, how did you get to NYU? That, that was my original question. Sorry. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, so I I did an MFA in poetry at the University of Arizona. And I knew it because, well, you're a poet. That's true. Yeah, it's clear. It's clear in the movie. Okay, good. Okay, go ahead. For better or worse as well. Um, I finished my manuscript. I was talking to my mentor. And, like, I was just seeing that, like, number one, if you weren't in New York or in, like, these pockets of poetry scenes, right. that it was hard to get published. And that really you were just trying to get published so that you could get a job in academia. And, like, I didn't know, while I do love to teach, I find it incredibly easy to fake teaching, so I don't think that's being a good teacher. You know, so um, I was suspicious of me going into academia, knowing who I am and knowing that I like to be making things. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, So I was talking to my mentor, Jane Miller, and she was like, well, if you finish your manuscript, what do you want to do now? And I was obsessed with the Beyonce Lady Gaga telephone video. And I was talking to Jane about it. I had showed it to her in her office. And I was like, well, I want to be doing this. Like, I want to be making this. And she was like, well, then you should apply to NYU and USC and see what happens. So that's what I did. And like, I had no training in film whatsoever. I just knew that I... I'm also interested in audience in a way that, like, I don't think um, contemporary poetry has the audience I'm going after. Like, I am, you know, very into pop culture, very into like, what what do what do people watching things in te- in, in their homes and on television like? How can I reach those people? I mean, I made an experimental documentary, so I don't know if I'm going to reach those people. But eventually, you know, I would had my eye on what kind of audience. What like what is my purpose of making this art to reach an audience? I don't know that like contemporary poetry is going to give me the audience, the wide and diverse audience that I want. You know, I don't know that I'm going to reach the people I want to reach through poetry. Through publishing poetry. Yeah, publishing poetry. Yeah, because, yeah, I have I have a lot of master's degrees. I have three. (laughs) <laughs> and the first one um, is from Naropa University in creative writing. Yes. Yeah. The, yes. um, the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics. I know it well. Yeah. I have been there. Okay. Yes. Oh, okay. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, but really it is a bit of a, um insular community, like that active group of, of poets. And they know each other and they go to conferences and meet each other and they buy each other's work. But as far as like getting out to the wider, like non-poetic area, so, yeah, non-poetic world, um, it's it's tough that, that um, I would say what that, that 
that translation is, is a bit hard. Okay, so you went to NYU and you were a mentee for the Ryan Murphy Plus Half Initiative. Um, tell us about that. I'm a big fan of, of Ryan Murphy, by the way. I, I love me some American Horror Story, so. Yeah, um, and I just, I love his world. I mean, I don't know that I'm always following it like on a narrative level. I don't need to, me being me. Like I'm there for the melodrama and the brightness anyway. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the color, give me the color, give me, you know, a sassy female lead, I'm there. Yes, um, yes. So, yeah, I had applied, and it is a really interesting program in the fact that, like, that you get you get to shadow a director on one of Ryan Murphy's shows, and you get to be with him for an entire episode, and you get paid, so that's nice. Yeah, so which show? This past, um, shit, winter, like, not very long ago. I shadowed Gwyneth Horter Payton on uh, episode two of The Politician season two. Yeah, it gave me, it put me in the um, orbit of Bette Midler for, you know, 10 days, which is weird. I had written about her and how like her character in Big Business was a big, in, like- I love that movie! Underrated classic. Okay, seriously, all those movies she was in in the 90s, like um, Outrageous Fortune and um, the one with Danny DeVito, Ruthless People. Ruthless People, yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's, um, I kept wondering, like, how am I going to get an opportunity to talk to Beth? One day she got, came and sat right behind me, and I just turned around and I was like, Hi, Beth, I'm Bo. <laughs> we both talked about how we hated the New York winters because she's, you know, from Hawaii, because I thought I was from Alabama. And then one day I, um, I wore my Willie Nelson shirt to set, and we talked about how she thought Willie was one of the great American songwriters of all time. Okay. I don't know. It was just, a, I, I don't, that's again, like the universe nanny at work. Like, I don't know yes. any other way to explain that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but it was insane. I mean, going, I mean, you know, because I'm very, in, uh, all my roots in film are in independent projects. Like, right. Mm -hmm. by, by the skin of our teeth, we are making this movie. We are going out, you know, and trying to see what we can conjure in front of the camera. Whereas, like, you know, when you go onto the set of a Ryan Murphy show, it is uh, big. It is like industrial. So I just sat watching. I always learn by watching anyway. So it was just a really great opportunity to sit and watch like how that machine works and how quickly it moves. And, you know, it's like I always griped about like, why do you need this many people on a set? You can get that done with like five people. Because because you're used to you used to doing it on a shoestring. Okay, so um, tell us about um, your award for the Sandra, I'm going to totally butcher this last name, Ifra Imova, which is an award, um, awarded by Spike Lee, right? Uh, yeah, Spike Lee, he's like the artistic director of the NYU grad film program, and he has his own fund, and then he has his, uh, this other, the Sandra Fund, um, and you know, students can apply with their projects. I applied with my TV pilot, Shitbird, and he chose it. What's that about? That is about um, a small community, as most of my things are, in the Deep South, where um, there are two half-sisters who haven't spoken in a long time, and they are, re they are reuniting um, after, uh, on the um, occasion of their father's death. They haven't spoken since. And their father's like a big community man. His, he's got like, he loans all this land that's tied up into this highway that's coming in to um, bring progress to this small town. 
And so all the, like the town is divided over it. And these two sisters, half sisters find themselves like trying to save their small town or trying to figure out what to do with the inheritance they have, which is a really fucked up inheritance. Okay. Okay. So that, that speaks a little bit to, to um, your experience, your family, your familiar. Yes. I mean, every story is my family basically. So well, I think that's probably like with every, um, every film that a, filmmaker makes I mean there is a to a certain degree a part of them in that a part of their personal story to some degree you know something they're trying to process or, or deal with you know I think if they're a good filmmaker it's where you find your earliest semblances of story your earliest understanding of story it's like I always tell people I'm a writer yes my dad quoted me Shakespeare because he was a book guy mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and would read but I also learned it by listening on the floor like laying on the floor listening to my mother talk to her mother and her sister about gossip, you know, just like gossiping town news. Like that's where I learned about how to tell a story. That's where I learned. Like I know, I know I've noticed that in the U S when it comes to um, filmmaking, uh, it's like the, the industry in a way makes you kind of pick what side you want to be on. Like your narrative or your documentary, you are, well, you are both. I demand to be both. You demand to be both. Yeah, but see, it's really interesting because like in Europe, it's very common for, I mean, some of the greatest documentarians in um, Europe have been um, narrative filmmakers, but also in other countries. It's just here where it seems to be so um, insular and what, so um, segregated. Um, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean... And your film actually, I don't want to get into the film yet because I'm going to start crying, but <laughs> but your film actually blends the a lot of these elements of narrative and, and documentary. Um, so did you have, you were able to get this film done fairly quickly. Did you initially, when you were initially pitching it, like have some like initial um, resistance towards towards the film as far as funding it? Cause people, some folks like more traditional doc folks didn't really kind of understand what you were trying to do. Yeah. I would say we're talking about like the U S is like uh, all systems needing everything to be a binary. And it's like, it's not, it's not either or it's a spectrum. Um, and I would say this, it was hard to get support financially. It was hard for people to give that kind of support. Um, and a lot of like, we don't know what this is. We can't envision, like, we don't trust you, number one. Like, we don't really, like, we can't see where this is going or what it is. And because you're a first-time filmmaker, we're not willing to risk in that way. But I will say the other side of that is that people like you, a lot of other bright stars in the documentary community. Lisa Hasco? Yes. Film Independent? Yes. Talk about your um, work with Film Independent, because they have a... We did the Fast Track Finance. The Fast Track, yeah. So talk about that for folks who are just trying to get a better understanding of like how documentaries are made and what these labs and Fast Tracks are about. Yeah. Well, I would say it all comes down to like, I mean, their labs are great. The, the organizations are great. But the individual people, like Lisa Hasco, you know, it's like, Mm -hmm. these are the people who would like, we don't, like, even if we can't give you straight up funding, like, I see what you are doing, and I believe in that, and I'm excited by that. Mm -hmm. That was enough to keep me going. Like, the money, I'll figure out. Right. Because I know how to work with what I have. Like, I know skillful will, because I'm a, you know, Southerner who didn't grow up with a whole lot. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So I know, so it, what it really is whenever I always just say to apply to everything because you don't know what kind of support is there and you don't know what kind of, what in how much one individual or, you know, an individual here and there can affect your mood about your project. Yes. Yes. And give you another lens to your project. So, yeah, I mean, it's always just, I just think it's always about having, like, keeping the conversation going and widening the people you are talking to your project about is what I really take from that. And you will eventually find the Lisa Haskos who, like, I remember the first time I met her in real life, I was, like, trying to drag her to a Tanya Tucker concert. And I think I almost had it. <laughs> I can't. I have to be at IFP tomorrow. I was like, please, just come to me to see Tanya Tucker. But just to say, you know, it's just, like, it's about broadening your community. It's not necessarily about financial support, but that can come with it. Too. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so big shout out to um, Lisa because um, um, we used to work together. She was my boss. Um, I mentioned my day job uh, several times, like during these uh, various um, episodes. And um, she taught me everything I know about fiscal sponsorship. And then she went on to... Um, go to Film Independent to start their fiscal sponsorship program. And she was recently promoted to, I'm not, I won't get the title totally wrong, Lisa, but I'll, lay, I'll link to your Film Independent page, but she's like director of documentary programs or something now. So how about we give her head diva in charge? Yeah, there that's you go. What that's, what, that's what I was saying. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes, but she is um, an amazing, incredible, like thoughtful caring um committed committed person and like i i know i i love her dearly yes and when she sees you you feel that like you yes. feel seen you know and that is support that is a big it, part of support. Ex exactly 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 i'm gonna start crying okay <laughs> i do love lisa okay so before we get into your movie um let's talk about because i was reading your bio and then you said you are a member of the first church of dolly park yes and um I, I Google that and I'm like, oh my God, that is a thing. Is it? And that is, it is, it's amazing. That is a thing. And I, ha I have a special place in um, my heart for, for Dolly because one of the first movies I remember like be like kind of, kind of raising my feminist awareness uh, when I was a child, nine to five. Amen. Yes. A woman. One of, one of my favorite movies. And I remember seeing that. And I said, when I grow up, I'm never going to work in a place like that. So much for that. But, <laughs> <laughs> but at least you know. But yeah. But like, it's amazing. That film is like, there's so many issues that women in the workplace deal with are back then or were still relevant today. So anyway, so tell us about the first church of Dolly Parton. Well, this is the first time in my knowledge that it's an official thing, just to tell you. Okay. <laughs> well there's a website okay. which I'll be linking to on your on your bio page when when we put it okay. up. Okay. <laughs> I'll be glad to know about it. Uh I to visit it. I've always just said that because it's like I am a spiritual person. Like I believe I mean I, I believe a lot of things. But I just think that, you know, uh, there are other ways of working in this world other than the physical things that we can see and touch and know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I, but, you know, grew up Southern Baptist and was, you know, when my queerness started to reveal itself, was bullied in the church. So it's like, mm 
mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we're at odds. Like I always have loved that community. I had loved, you know, the magic yes. of Jesus. And um, so it's like these things were at odds. And so I felt like, you know, because we're so used to binary thinking that I had to reject any notion of like spirituality or God or whatever, universe, et cetera. But Dolly really was a way for me to get back to my own understanding of spirituality and how you practice that in your life. Um, Cause she talks about, um, and, and I think this was like talked about in the, the uh, Dolly Parton's America podcast, but I've been knowing it for a while. Uh, wait, 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 there's a podcast? There's a, po- a podcast called Dolly Parton's America. It's really good. I was very, I was very suspicious of a long, uh, for a long time. Cause you know, I don't want anybody telling me about Dolly Parton, but um, <laughs> As I said before, it's always important to be widening your community of understanding. Um, right. <laughs> so, uh, but she talks about like growing up with a Pentecostal preacher for a grandfather and how he was like always worried about her getting into heaven because of the way she looked, because she wanted mm. to look on the outside the way she felt on the inside, which was fabulous. Um, and that she never really sort of aligned or found solace in that kind of religion of her grandfather, but that she would go to this abandoned church in the woods where people would go to make out, probably have sex, write dirty things on the wall. Um, but th- there was also this like broken down piano in there that could still play, you know, some keys. And so she would go there and like play with that piano, like read the graffiti on the walls. And like, she talks about that's where she found God was that that God was all of these things, that God wasn't this, you know, sort of you know, white man in the sky. But, um, and so that really brought me back of like an understanding of, I don't have to rely on a church to tell me about religion and spirituality. That comes from me and my own exposure to the world. And Dolly Parton led me down that road. Dolly Parton, the gospel of Dolly. The gospel of Dolly, honey. It's, um, you know, it's in line with like how I, see the world which is coming to it with love and reserving any judgment about it you know about and it's about loving people all right so now we're gonna get into this movie oh lord like (laughs) socks on fire i mean telling a family story can be difficult i mean it's incredibly personal you're airing the dirty laundry and in your film i think you say that nanny did not like to air her dirty laundry, but how did you um, navigate the dynamics of that? Um, but in addition to so many of your family members, and but also the people in your life, like your teachers, and I'm going to talk about that scene later. How did you um, broach the subject of like of getting them on camera because they are all like so open and um, relaxed and you know, but also like like you're their boy and you they're willing to help you. Like what you, what do you need, Bo? Like that was yes. very clear. That yes. was very clear. So how did you navigate those dynamics of like telling the story, but also telling this kind of dark family, this dark family story about really some of the ugly side of what happens when somebody dies? Um, I will say that it really, I mean, there wasn't much negotiating on my part because I just had to make the movie. Like I just felt like I was, I felt called to in a way it's, I always talk about this dream I had in Tucson, Arizona, before we started shooting, um, that uh, was me sitting at my nanny's table, my grandmother's table, 
her smoking those Virginia Slims. And like she was telling me information like it was more than a dream. I mean, I know this is getting, you know, out there, but go with it. And it was like she was it was like I could not understand what she was saying. And I was writing and trying to remember. Mm-hmm. And um was this after you were dreaming about her after she had passed? Yeah. And I mean, I don't know if you know Tucson, but it's like the energy there. It's like a New Orleans energy. And so the veil just feels thin out there in the desert. Um, so I, I just felt like it was a transmission of like information. I couldn't get down everything that she was saying, but I knew that she was downloading me with information. Right. And the one line I remember her saying was, that just pisses him off. Mm-hmm. And so I called my mother the next day to tell her about this dream. Mm-hmm. And she said, well, Bo, that's the weirdest thing because on the way back from the airport, I stopped by your nanny's parents' cemetery, their grave, and it was all grown up. And see, my grandfather, nanny's husband, Papa, mm-hmm. would always keep that weed eaten. And so, and mother was like, all I could think was like how much it would piss Papa off that the grave looked like that. Like that, yeah, yeah. But there were all these sort of like, when I say it wasn't a choice and I felt called, there were all these sort of like signs that were lining up that was like, this is my story to tell. And culminating also with like, when um, after Carrie Fisher had died, Meryl Streep said in an acceptance, like, take your broken heart and make it into art. And this was going down in my family. And I couldn't figure a way into it. I couldn't figure out how to help my mom. Um, and so, yeah, I just felt like I had to make it. And they, as you say, were there to help. And that is a part of like skillful will being like, what do I have? I have very dynamic people in my family that will do what I need them to do or ask them to do. Um, because like, they want me to have a career. They want me to like be able to um, they want me to be successful um, for the family um, and for myself, but for the family. Um, and so I knew that they would do that. And I knew that I always talk about this moment where my friend Ruthie from New York came to visit. And we went and saw Uncle John. And it was like after the whole house negotiation. So like a lot of Socks on Fire revolves around my grandmother's house and who gets the house. And my Uncle John was living in it at the time. We went up and visited him. And so this is after Nanny had passed. But he was like bringing out all these objects, like her ironing board, and being like, they don't make ironing boards like this anymore. Mm, mm, like mm, to, mm-hmm. to like sort of sort of like explaining by the objects who my grandmother was. Yeah, her history. Yeah. Right. Her- and in that moment, I was like, no one will ever be more Uncle John than Uncle John. Like you cannot cast a person. And this is like the beauty of documentaries. Like you can't cast a person. Um, so I knew I had that. And the way I did it to begin with, when we did that first round of production, which was no interviews, it was just when we did like the, the shots of us dancing on the bluff and like weird. Is that when you did some of the, the reenactments? Yes. And so why don't you talk about that too? Because Renelle, I quote, I'm quoting Renelle now. She says, the reenactments are so special. Yes. Because it's it's a lot of people to do reenactments and documentaries, huh? and it is cheesy as hell. Yes. I know. And, and and that is not your film. <laughs> um yeah. And so a lot of a lot of that was like I wouldn't tell people cuz number number one I didn't usually know what I was going to do. I mean, this film was a collabor like true collaboration and the fact that like I ha- I held the vision and you know like not a lot of like where the camera needed to go. I let my my cinematographer Matt Clegg do that work. Yeah. And, but also and, and just shout out to him. 
I mean, so some of the ways it was shot were just different and amazing. And like, oh my God, I've never seen something shot from that particular angle. And it just, like, I felt like every aspect of it just like contributed to. It is like, this is the way filmmakers listening, anyone listening, it's the way film should be made is like, find the people who are very interested in their craft, who are artists, and get out of the way. Yes, like, yes. Get out of the way. Talk to them. Find the people who will listen to you, but then have their own ideas. Yes. You know, mm -hmm. like, get out of the way. Um, so, yeah, a lot of, like, that was, like, I wouldn't tell Uncle John. I would be like, I'm going to have you in drag. But I wouldn't tell him that we were going to go out to the bluff and shoot outside. And, but then, you know, it's like other things would happen where once he got out onto the bluff outside, he wanted to walk across the neighbors. He wanted to walk across the road to the neighbor's house and knock on their door and drag, you know? So it was like following that impulse and not planning so much, like not yeah, let, letting God into the production, letting the universe like dictate and take some control. That actually uh, reminds me of the last scene when it's like, your mama and, and um, Uncle John, they're sitting on the porch wearing dragon. You in that beautiful caftan. And and Uncle John says, that car is going by twice. He must like what he sees. Yes. How you doing? <laughs> yes. And that is really, you know, just setting up the camera and letting Uncle John be Uncle John. You know, this is really, that's how he talks. That's how him and my mom talk to each other. Just, I mean, as a Southerner too, like, so I was raised in, um, in Augusta, um, Augusta, Georgia, uh, which is, which is, I guess, considered city-fied, but I have, you know, a lot of, um, cousins who live in the, in the country, like in, in Athens, in Oconee County, um, which is actually where the land where my, my ancestors were enslaved and then subsequently, uh, sharecroppers on a land where my, my grandparents are sharecroppers on the land. But so this, I have a lot relatives that live out there. So like seeing the scenes of um, like your family on the porch, because Southerners, we love our porches and sitting in the rocking chairs. <laughs> and I mean, it's, it's a communal space. So like that warmed my heart, but also towards the end where you have the scenes of nanny reenactor <laughs> hanging clothes on the clothesline because my grandmama, even though in Augusta, Georgia, she didn't get a dryer to like the mid 1980s. So I remember going around to the side of the house, like hanging clothes on the clothesline. And then we had like a little garden, you know, that my, my granddaddy tilled. But I just think with the clothespins and stuff. And I remember like being, and I hadn't really, I hadn't thought about that in forever. I, I come from a troubled family. So I have very few good memories. And like, I'm going to thank you for that those scenes in that film because yeah it's like these these little these little things like these little incredibly beautiful things that that you, you've highlighted well i'm glad to hear that i mean it's, it's uh it's um it warms my heart and excites my mind that like that those sort of kind of connections are happening nanny ha i mean Nanny had a dryer, but she didn't want to use it because what? It was too expensive. Exactly. Too much, took too much energy. So one thing I thought about um, as we've been talking today is uh, magical realism. Like that's to me is what your film, and when I think of like magical realism, I, I could just think about like films like, like Water 
like Water for Chocolate, which is like one of my favorite movies or like one of my favorite books. Um, when I was talking to uh, Renell like earlier and I was telling her like this film, you you have us essentially walking with you through through your memories. Yes. And um, it's incredibly beautiful, but also incredibly intimate. But also that you're walking through this, this you're walking us through this place, you know, with these people who are like reenacting and who are being you and who are being your granny. Um, but it also talks about how, even though we're kind of like walking through these memories, they're not really memories. Like these people are still with us. Yeah. And, and not, not in spirit. Like they are, they are present. There's, they are a presence in our lives. They are in our DNA. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. We yeah. walk with their wisdoms, their knowledge in ourselves. Exactly, exactly. And I just thought that was just so um, incredibly, incredibly uh, powerful. And um, one of the most scenes that where I kind of I burst into tears. Okay, <laughs> was um, when you talk about your teachers and the the different things that they had like given you and how. Well, save me, I think is what I say. They say, yeah. And, okay, so y'all, there's this beautiful scene. You'll see it when you see the movie. But I've just, this this uh, this group of like women, but like about 10 of them, 10? Yeah, maybe even more 10, like 15. More like 15. And um, these are like women in, in Bo's life, Bo's life who, who shaped him. And uh, yeah. Especially, okay, but I think about the teacher. This made me think about a lot of things. So, like, the teachers I had in my life um, who, like, saw something special in me, mm -hmm. uh, especially like, in the fam the home that I grew up in, and um, how much, like, as when I was little, I just made me remember, like, how much I loved some of them so. Right. You know, and how they, I mean, okay, so my, I remember my biology teacher, Miss um, Graham, and I think she passed away like 20 years ago, but she, I was this really shy freshman in, in high school and she made me, I was a little, I was scared of her. No lie. I was scared of her, but she made me run um, for, for student council office mm -hmm. and like, and then as a, as a freshman and then through, through my, my high school days, I was, I eventually rose to be like co-president of my class when I was finally a senior, but it just opened me up to so many opportunities, but really she made me do it. She saw that I, in you. She saw that in me and I was scared to tell her no. Cause I was scared of her. You know? <laughs> yeah. Didn't want to disappoint her or, you know, experience. Yeah, that. yeah, exactly. And just, I mean, that one scene is just a love, a, a love letter to the, to the educators in our lives. Yes. And it really celebrates teachers and in a world right now where uh, you know teachers are not celebrated and they don't get enough of what they need to educate our children. And yeah, yeah okay. I mean, yeah. Well, you know, we talk about educators with like books and you know, tests, but it's like the women I grew up with were, I mean, the ones that touched me were also teaching me how to be in this world. Yes. Like, you know, yeah. I mean, I sat down with Miss Walton, who's one of the teachers in, that I interviewed, and she was talking about how I was like, what would like, what do you wish you could? Or, I don't know what she said, but she's like, I wish I could like, I wish I could keep better tabs on everyone as they grow older to see. Um, you know, I just like wonder like what I or how people end up. I can't remember how she put it. I wanted to say what I did tell her was like, 
what you have, what you need to understand is that you just being you, as like the Japanese American woman, the only other person of any other kind of race besides white that I can see in this school, you just being you and you sitting in your power and in your love teaches me how to be. Mm. Like those mm-hmm. wisdoms are not lost on me. I'm not. The book is one thing. But like you being you in front of this classroom is the real teaching that I'm getting, you know? Right, right, right. And it is these, I mean, these very specific moments. And it's, it is, it's like we do not support our teachers in the way they need, in the way that they support us and in in, in all the facets that they teach us how to be human beings. And I, I just, I just love, just love that, love that scene. I mean, you know, it's like it was not easy, obviously, growing up queer in a place like yeah, yeah, um, Hoaxville, Alabama. But it's um, these women saw, you know, like you say, something special, something sparkling. Like I remember, like I hated going to PE every day because it was like macho jock. Like I came from a place where, like, the only you were nothing unless you were an athlete. If you were a man, and usually if you were a female, um, and that I would hate it. And so I would go in and I would, I would use any excuse I could to not be at PE. So I would go in saying, I need to go talk to Miss Young. So I would go in like probably bothering the hell out of her during her lesson plan, you know? But I, there was this one day where I was like closing the door and she said, hey, Bo, I love you. Mm-hmm. And like that was just so, like no teacher had ever told me in those words, you know, had said those words. And something and about her, because she is a woman probably, um, had the emotional capacity to see I needed to hear that right from the right. structure we were in, which was this school. Mm-hmm, anyway, mm-hmm. So just say yes. And I Socks on Fire is a record of people and places I didn't want to lose, you know, through time. You know, and in that way. Like it is a record of Nanny's legacy and the legacy of females that I grew up with that is separate from Aunt Sharon's legacy of Nanny, which is tied up in court probate court and petty drama anyway i want to get into the, the the lyrical aspects of your language because like when i was listening to your essentially your poetry which like you t- which you used to kind of take us through the film in your opening like you have the scene where you talk about how you're you actually you're going through your lineage and so-and-so begot so-and-so and so-and-so begot so-and-so that's like straight up genesis yes you know <laughs> <laughs> it is yeah but it's but uh but yeah so just talk about that like was that a conscious decision like to kind of make that connection or was that just something that kind of came from within as you were kind of writing really this, this script or creating the language for this film it, i don't know if he was necessarily conscious but i had i have started i started reading the bible because i felt like um people were using it against me and I wanted to understand. Yes, come on with that. Because if because if, if you read it, you know what's actually in it. Right. <laughs> exactly. Um, and God forbid we start talking about translations, but um, okay, Amen. That part too. <laughs> so it was in my mind, and when I was reading Genesis, like the begots, really. Of course, I mean that's what that's why they're there. They're, it's a rhythm. It is. Um, yes. Yes. Lyricism. So. And a lot of, and I was thinking about this when you were talking about the porch, and and I think this like can come over to the Bible speak is like a lot of what I wanted to do in Socks on Fire was take these things that are seen as um, one thing, white, straight, 
um, heteronormative and queer the hell out of them. So you take the space of my grandmother's porch and put my mother in a Delta Burke dress, that's what I call it, and um, Uncle John in full drag and me in that caftan, we have queered the space. In the same way, like I'm talking about my lineage as a queer person of these people using biblical language, I'm going to queer that Go language for now. myself. Yes, you know? I like that. I won't okay. let you have it. That's subversive, <laughs> honey. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. And, you know, it is. Um, and what you're talking about, like the imagine, like the it, I think the imagine imaginative part of this and the magical realism part of it is I think about it as a documentary of imagination and how these people populate my imaginative space in very real ways, um, and that they're actually real people too. Uh, so I think about it in those terms that. Um, these things are with us. The Bible is with us as Southerners. Front porches are with us. Um, our family members, hateful and not, are with us. What am I going to do about that? I'm going to put it through my queer imagination and show the world. Queer that. As someone who was born and raised in Georgia, it is always exciting for me to see and celebrate Southern filmmakers. The first time I saw Socks on Fire, the story and imagery evoked in me a sense of memory of home and days spent on my grandparents' porch watching cars go by and waving to the neighbors. We were a community. And community is what every filmmaker needs. To take a page out of Bo's very colorful book, build those friendships and relationships. Let go of binary thinking and in your own way, whether you are straight or gay, or something else, queer the hell out of the spaces that you occupy. Thank you so much for listening today. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on all your podcast platforms. Visit our website at whatsupwdocs.com. That's whatsupwdocs.com. And make sure to sign up for our mailing list to get the latest show news. And you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at What's Up W Docs. Again, that's What's Up W Docs. And remember, keep telling your stories. Today's episode was hosted by Tony Bell and produced by Renell Schubert. Music is by Sierra Thomas.